a new universe opened up in Concord almost 380 years ago when one of the founders, Simon Willard, pointed to the four corners of the compass and stated that he had purchased the land three miles in each direction on behalf of Governor Winthrop and a few others. And standing there with the Reverend Peter Bulkley near Bulkley's new home in Concord, you can imagine the excitement and adventure they felt, the sense of possibility that existed in their hearts and in the hearts of the 12 English families that had already settled in the area. There were hardships to face, not the least of which was the deteriorating relations between settlers and the indigenous people, resulting eventually in an ugly war that made living on this frontier a perilous adventure at best. And there were other wars in which this community played a very important part. There were natural disasters and fires to overcome, and there were triumphs and tragedies of everyday life that accompany a growing community. But always, always, there's the will and the spirit to move forward. There's a great story by Irish writer Frank O'Connor that President John F. Kennedy used to use when speaking of his commitment to the space exploration despite the dangers and the many unknown factors. Kennedy explained how O'Connor and his friends would make their way across the countryside and then when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue, they would take off their hats and toss them over the wall and they had no choice but to follow them over. Time and again, it seems that this is what's happened here in Concord. Those who have been part of this wonderful story over the centuries have thrown their hats over the wall and have had no choice but to follow them. The story of this church and the history of its spirit was one of the things that drew me to this internship when I first started. I had a sense, a resonance with an ever-broadening belief in community, a community that was willing to take risks and widen the circle even more. Albert Einstein once wrote that a human being is part of the whole, called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings as something somehow separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion, he said, of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task, Einstein wrote, must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. The idea that we humans are limited in time and space is one worth deep consideration. In 2000, Forrest Church, Unitarian Universalist minister at All Souls in New York City, wrote, Religion is our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Our ability to comprehend that our time is finite makes us question what this life is all about. Church used the exact same words in the introit to his book, Love and Death, written eight years later after he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. 
And at that time, he added, death is not life's goal, only its terminus. The goal is to live life in such a way that our lives will prove worth living for. When I was young, my father, a scientist and rational humanist, made me understand that early on for him, a successful life, a meaningful life, was one that would be measured in self-reflection as his time drew to a close. In his own version of Philippians 4.8, he said that he would want to be able to look into the mirror and say that on balance, at the end of his life, he had acted in accordance with whatever was true, whatever was noble, whatever was right, and whatever was excellent. He would have agreed with Bertolt Brecht, who wrote, Do not fear death so much, but rather the inadequate life. Back then, if my dad were to express the ideals of our Unitarian faith, he might have called up the old words of liberalism, freedom, reason, and tolerance. I don't know exactly what scale my dad would have used to measure himself as a young or a middle-aged man, but I do know that after he retired and moved into his senior years, his scope widened considerably. He began to consider his time of life and expand his reading beyond work and science-related material. He found a new spirituality based on his concern for the earth, and he became deeply involved not only with his church community, but also in an association with fellow scientists working to find a dynamic and positive relationship between religion and science. I think he began to understand that while the ideals of freedom, reason, and tolerance were still worthy, they described only a process for approaching religious depths, but that they don't testify to any intimate acquaintance with the depths themselves. He saw that our real-life experiences in the words of Sophia Faz were constantly beckoning us to climb down from the elevated perches to vacate the comfortable surrounds of life's surface and to enter the depths where authentic suffering, joy, and meaning await. And he began to encourage others to share their life's journeys. He and I had suddenly something to talk about. And he wanted to share what he read or heard and lend me the latest title. And father and son relationships being what they are, it took me a while to understand that love with a capital L had crept more consciously into my dad's equations. He was still highly goal-driven, still had that abiding interest in how things worked, but the human factor and his deep feeling for this planet had tipped the balance. He was concerned with what we were leaving our grandchildren. I believe he finally perceived what was true all along, that love would play the greatest role in his sense of self before he died, how much love he was able to give away, and how much he felt reflected back. I was brought up in a humanist household, even though there were many flavors of humanism to be found there, and in a liberal Unitarian Sunday school. Therefore, my focus has never been seriously directed to the question of what happens to us after we die. Rather, the question has always been to what to make of this life before we die. 
and since we can never know when our time will be up, it always seemed to me a better idea to look in the mirror on a daily basis and not to wait for some ideal moment. Sometimes it's been difficult to look in that mirror, but an honest appraisal through the looking glass has been a pretty good way to bring conscience to the fore and get a read on what is good and right or not so right in my world. Truth be told, however, the world is bigger than any one of us, and as we mature, we tend to look for other reflections beyond the single face in the bathroom mirror. Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner, himself a dabbler in the relationship between science and spirituality, wrote that a healthy social life is found only when in the mirror of each soul the whole community finds its reflection, and when the whole community The virtue of each one is living. Let me read that again. A healthy social life is found only when in the mirror of each soul the whole community finds its reflection, and when in the whole community the virtue of each one is living. To belong to, to be an integral part of such a loving community, A community that is more than just the sum of its parts would not just be the greatest of social supports. Its ever-broadening vision would also provide the greatest hope for our society. Just before my dad died, we had an interesting conversation about leadership. He, too, had made a late career decision to change course and follow a passion into a new field. For him, it was teaching. And because he had been the subject of some pretty big egos during his time in the business world, he made it something of a mission to teach good ethical business management practices to university students in Boston. And my dad was both proud and interested in my development, in my career in publishing, and my growth into management. But I often shied away from talking to him about it as I didn't want to be pried with questions and then have to keep up my end of the conversation with the expert. On this occasion, though, he surprised me. He had been ill for some time. It was a terminal illness. And because of that, he'd been doing a lot of staring outside his apartment windows. And he said to me on this day that everything he knew about business management could just as easily be taught by observing geese in flight. He noticed that while from the ground, the chevron seems to move out to the right and left from a strong lead bird, In reality, their positions within the formation are always changing. Each bird that's capable takes its turn to lead and break the air to serve the flock. Of course, as a scientist, my dad was particularly enthralled with the aerodynamics of the whole thing. But the bottom line was that the geese had a goal, an internalized map, which they all bought into, and they shared the responsibility of the load. When one of them had the energy to take the lead, keeping the goal in mind, the others moved aside, appreciating the effort. When one of the flock faltered, others were there to help and take care of their own. The movement of the entire flock required the active awareness and participation of every bird. I wasn't sure this was my dad talking, but I kind of liked the idea. And I laughed when he said that once he had cracked the bird's communication code, he was going to write his bestseller and go public with the whole thing. (laughs) 
I was finalizing this reflection the other day and remembering my dad, and I was rewarded by the familiar honking of geese in flight. What a wonder. I went outside to the patio and looked up, found the birds, thought about the possibilities of expanding the metaphor a little bit, but just stood there in silent wonder. As a religious organization, we have our own course to travel. It's rooted in our principles and purposes of the denomination and given direction by the mission statement that this church adopted a year ago. Moving toward that goal takes the combined effort of as many young and old hands as possible. It requires leadership that knows how to build on strengths while minimizing weaknesses. It's not about getting as many people onto the bus or even getting the right people onto the bus. It's about building a sense of common purpose and shared responsibility. It's about communicating well. And most important, it's about making sure we take care of each other along the way. Sometimes, too, it requires us to take our hats off and throw throw them over that seemingly insurmountable wall. Throughout the life of this congregation, the long life of this congregation, that's happened over and over. Sure, the journey's not been that easy. It's never been smooth. There's been detours along the way. But since those early days 378 years ago, the sun has always risen on a church with a strong future. The covenant of that new congregation in Concord in 1636 was simple to walk henceforth as becometh the people of God. And the members of the congregation had only to listen to Peter Bokley or turn to scripture to understand what that meant and what they were called to be. A minister in those days didn't have to be so subtle in urging his people to join together in the ways of the Spirit. And in fact, it's been said of Peter Bokley that he preached as if in almost constant combat with irreligion and timidity of faith. There is less power in the pulpit today than there was in Peter Bulkley's day, as there's no all-powerful God waiting in the wings to elicit the fear of a final verdict on anyone's life. In our own time, a minister has to work harder and in a more roundabout fashion to convince a congregation of individuals to walk together towards a common goal which is why I believe this congregation and every congregation should undertake the hard work of building a covenant with each other, a covenant of right relations, and renewing it on a regular basis. For this congregation, it would mean spending the time to develop a new and agreed-upon understanding of what it means to deepen spiritually and how we carry that into our relations with each other. It means thinking about how we go about building community and how it continually stri- that community con- continually strives to expand beyond the current membership and beyond these sanctuary walls. It means we need to think about how we move together as community towards the shining goal of making a positive difference in the world. These are not easy conversations. But after all, What is the purpose of this church? The first settlers of Concord beheld a beautiful world and responded to it by joining together in community and living together in a certain way. 
my good friends, the universe is no less beautiful today. And opening to its wonder, what song will come out of our mouths? What prayer, what praises, what sacred offering, what whirling dance, what religion, and what reverential gesture will we make to greet that world every single day we are in it? Will we do it alone? Or will we do it together? Where will we go as a community of faith from here? Wherever it is, let us take our first steps by creating a shared commitment to each other as fellow travelers on this incredible journey. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen.